Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We hear a lot of loose talk these days about all the things that are supposed to unite us as Americans. But there are far more important and powerful forces that divide us. At the center of that divide is the subject of class. Even more than race, the class divide lies at the base of the chasm that separates what John Edwards once called two Americas. The symbols are everywhere. Starbucks America versus Dunkin' Donuts America, educated versus non-educated, Walmart versus Whole Foods. But these are just symbols for the latest manifestations of a long history of class conflict in America. How they're playing out today is reflected in my guest Sarah Smarsh's new memoir, Heartland. Sarah Smarsh has written extensively about class and the working poor. Her articles have been published in Harper's, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and numerous other publications. She was recently a fellow at the Shorenstein Center on Media and Public Policy, and it is my pleasure to welcome Sarah Smarsh here to talk about her memoir, Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on. Great to have you here. First of all, tell us a little bit about where you grew up in Kansas. Sure. I grew up on a cattle and wheat farm about 30 miles west of Wichita, so that's south-central Kansas, not too far north of the Oklahoma border. I had red dirt on my shoes when I was a kid, and uh, it was a a small working farm. I'm a fifth-generation Kansas wheat farmer, and um, uh, it was um, an American experience that's increasingly rare due to forces that I talk about in my book in terms of agriculture and and rural life, but um, but, uh, it was beautiful in a lot of ways, too. To what extent were you aware of this being rural and, and different from other parts of America? And, and at what point did you begin to realize that there was that distinction? Mm, that's such a good question, and I think it has a lot to do with the moment I grew up. So I was a child in the 80s and a teenager in the 90s, and while there were some technological shifts um, going on already at that time, um, due to the um, mar- techno- technologies of my class that were available to us in terms of just economic feasibility. We didn't have cable TV. We didn't have the Internet. There was no computer in my home, even as I graduated from high school in 1998. Um, and so I was really um, – m- my uh, experience on that farm in, in terms of relationship to media and the narratives that might have told me what my place was in some pecking order were were sort of more like a 1950s childhood than maybe like a 2000s childhood. So, so for that reason, um, to finally answer your question, I I don't think I I knew much about our station in the world. I certainly didn't think of myself as poor. Um, it was when I got to college. I was a first generation college student at the University of Kansas. Um, is where I first began to understand, you know, there were, I was going to class with kids who, you know, they got a new car for high school graduation or, and, you know, lar- largely middle-class kids, but, but nonetheless um, um, supported by their parents who had been able to save for their college funds and so on. And, and um, meanwhile, I was working three jobs and, and I had scholarships too, but those were some of the hardest years of my life. And for a lot of the kids um, that I hung out with, it was like, the funnest years of their life. <laughs> and so that told me there was something different about where I came from. One of the things you talk about with respect to class, and it, it, it's sort of an interesting dichotomy that, that comes across, is that on the one hand, it is an artificial construct. It is kind of an illusion. But on the other, it is very real with, with very real and very serious consequences. 
Yeah, that's for sure. Um, you know, and like you mentioned some of some of the other um, identity factors and demographics that sort of shape our experiences as Americans um, in your in your intro, including race. Um, and l- so like race, I think um, class is this thing that we've sort of socially constructed to divide one another. Um, and, and and yet it has, you know, everything to do with our ultimate life experience in, in this society. So um, it can be, you know, therein lies some of the challenge of addressing it is that, you know, somehow those of us who are fighting against those sorts of categorizations or um, or power strata, are, are doing so within the context of a, of a society that has accepted and be, been complicit in, complicit in those same social constructs for a long time. Um, and, and then often, um, you know, adding to the co- complicating that challenge is that often those who are um, have the wisdom and tenacity to, to fight against, say, racial disparities are people on the losing end of that spectrum, and so too, uh, class and gender, I would say it tends to be um, people who who grew up with some economic strife who who are most compelled to fight to change the social order of things economically and and women are the ones um, leading the battle about gender and and so so it can feel like an uphill battle to to um, attempt these kind of social correctives. How much of it in your view is e- purely economic? And, and how much of it is sign of the cultural normative aspects of, of growing up in a particular place? Mm, yeah, that's such a good question. You know, um, a kind of uh, buzz, buzzword or um, popular term in media discourse today is the urban-rural divide. And um, I... I feel very reluctant to use terms like that um, because I think it it suggests that we're almost two different types of people or two different kinds of beings, and that does have some parallels with with some of the dangerous ways that people uh, use things like race and gender to to categorize. Um, You know, uh, I have lived on both sides of that so-called divide, and yet I am the same person, and um, and so I know that it's... um, I know because of my first-hand experience of those, yes, very different cultures and experiences, um, but nonetheless shared um, human experiences. And, um, you know, I think that, yes, the um, the aspects of my day-to-day life were shaped by, you know, and you're asking so, about class, and I'm kind of honing specifically in on the, the, the place component mm-hmm. of my mm-hmm. class, which was rural America, um, but regardless, whether it's a, a, a poor neighborhood in an inner city or a geographically remote area in Montana, um, I think that the um, the experience of having to struggle economically day to day, I do think is a more powerful factor in shaping outcomes and and just the fabric of your daily existence than any you know the particular culture of a place. Um, and I say that because, you know, within the context of, say, the middle or upper middle classes, there's, of course, immense diversity of cultural experience. And yet they share an ability to call a cab to the airport or go on right. a vacation a couple times a year. Or, you know, my family had, like, literally knew no one <laughs> who wasn't fighting in um, the, the financial battle 
And so it, it does seem to me that that somehow in a capitalist society overrides, um, uh, you know, just the culture of place and so on and, and just carving out what your life's going to look like. I, I wanted to add to that to, to clarify, um, I, you know, I'm talking about just the um, how how class is shaped. Um, I wrote this story as a white woman, and I was careful along the way um, to always be reverent to the other aspects of American identity that, that class intersects with and that also shape it. Um, and so I'm absolutely not talking in any sort of superlatives about class is, is more important than race or gender or sexual orientation or religion and so on. Um, you know, what I'm talking about right now is just the fact that um, among uh, poor, I, I, I feel like in many ways um, poor people of all different backgrounds have more in common. They might not think they do, um, and political messaging might successfully leverage the idea that they're very different. But in fact, I think they have much more in common in just the, the fabric of their daily lives than, um, than say, a, a poor white person has with a rich white person. Right. I mean, it, it, it's interesting because in terms of political messaging, I think that, that political consultants would argue that class is a more important factor, that, that class e- class divides even transcend race and gender at this point Mm. yeah you know i i push back against that um i'm not a researcher and um you know i i I did consult um research and statistics in in the crafting of this book from where i stand and my understanding having many conversations about class um specifically as a woman um Mm. i you know i I feel like it's i feel like it's dangerous and kind of a a losing game to to really um be um to to create some some sort of order (laughs) of um maladies it's just you know there's no way life in america is inevitably um intricately wound up with with other people's lives and realities and race and gender and all of these things are are part of class regardless of of your own place and upbringing so um so that that's not how I look at it but but I know that people come at it a lot of different ways now I will say that I do think it is important when I talk about things like diversity I always want to add to that conversation let's also specifically name socioeconomic class so so even as class and race and gender are you know intersect with one another I, I believe that class deserves to be discussed and examined in its own right just as do race and gender mm-hmm. if that makes sense absolutely one of the things you talk about too and this relates to kind of cultural norms and as well as the economic consequences and you talk a lot about teenage mothers and 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 having women that have children really early talk a little bit about that and, and how you see that playing out in this broader context Sure. So uh, at the beginning of our chat, I mentioned I'm a fifth-generation wheat farmer. That's on my paternal side. On my mother's side, I am, as far back as I can trace in the maternal lineage, the um, the descendant of generations and generations of teen pregnancy. So, um, you know, that act really informed um, how I structured the book and thought about the book in a lot of ways because it's, it's a story about my relationship to class and um the uh, the environment that I was born into, um, and that was one in which, at a very young age, I became aware of how important it 
would be in my life to ensure that I myself did not continue that family cycle if I wanted to go out and and do the things and accomplish the goals that I hoped for in the world. So, um, so this, you know, that's a just kind of another aspect of now teen pregnancy that has its correlations with poverty and that crosses all sorts of racial lines and, and geographic lines and in, even in a global sense. Um, for me, it was a story about farmers in Kansas, and um, and it absolutely is a culture where um, women have have babies much younger than they than they do in very cosmopolitan places like New York City, um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing by any means. Uh, in my particular family, it it did create some severe challenges for women who were already strapped financially, particularly in decades when they didn't have much agency on their own in in an economy that favored uh, men's wages and employment. Um, And so often those early pregnancies resulted in dependency on men, often unsavory ones. Um, And uh, and so it's sort of like... um, you know, being a parent is exper- is expensive. If you're already in the hole, then um, it's obvious that that is going to have economic uh, repercussions. When did you realize that that wasn't something you wanted to have happen to you, and how did you come to that? Uh, you know, I honestly, um, even before I think probably I was even old enough to bear children, um, I I was very aware of this as a... Um, a feature of our family. I think just because being around my fr- my friends, I mean, my mom was 17 when she got pregnant with me, and and um, and she also had like what they call here good genes to where she 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 looked incredibly young even when you know say she was in her mid 20s she still could have passed as a teenager. So I'm you know hanging out with my friends and it, literally my mom would appear more like my sister and my grandmother who was 34 when she became a grandma more like my mother and so i i think probably just because of the contrast with my friends families that i saw i understood that there was something very different about us in that way which i should point out because your listeners might be saying well i thought she just said everybody has kids young there well the difference in our family which i try to kind of parse in the book uh you know it's one thing to go off to like a state school and then come back to your small town with your college sweetheart and get married and have your first child at 23 that's a pretty natural order of things for for my family um it the the teenage pregnancy and the not finishing of high school often because of that was the sort of um class marker within the rural strata that we were living at so um so yeah i realized um you know Honestly, like like when when I was a child, that it was going to be important that I didn't um, that I didn't get pregnant before I finished high school, and um, that was uh, that's something I talk about in the book in a, in a very intimate way. Um, it's one of those things that you know these these cycles that had to do with economics and and bigger forces that shaped our family life were absolutely informing and shaping my most private and intimate thoughts and experiences. And the subset of that is education and the and understanding the importance of education as a way out. Talk about that. Yeah, so my family, it, it's a bunch of really brilliant people, honestly, and, and whatever way with words I might have that led, led me to be a writer, it, it, it comes from them. They're, you know, this um, witty, storytelling 
um, vibrant bunch. They just um, they didn't have the same opportunities that I ended up with. Um, mine came through public education, which was the only institution I was possibly going to be accessing from our socioeconomic lot. And um, so I was a bookish kid and a goal-oriented kid and a, and a kind of serious kid, to be honest. So I, I just I understood just as I knew I ought not get pregnant. I knew, too, if I want different outcomes, here's another thing I'm going to make sure that I need to do different than the women before me is make sure I finish high school. And so, um, you know, I studied hard. I By that time, I'm a teenager in the 90s, and by that decade, post-Title IX, uh, young women are being told, you know, you you deserve to go to college and be an engineer if you want to. And I just was encouraged to go to college by public high school teachers, and I applied for scholarships and got them. And, and thus, the course of my life um, was forever different than that of the women before me. Um, and so the, the education piece is really important to me, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm a staunch defender of public education. I also, though, am always careful to point out I just, gosh, it, it uh, pains me when the national conversation talks about the educated and the uneducated because I think implicit in that is often a, a criticism of the latter as though they are ignorant, dumb, lesser than. And, in fact, um, their education has come by other means, life experiences, Yes, they're lacking in formal degrees, um, and you know what? They they might have done just fine um, in those academic spaces if given the chance. So, um, so yeah, ed- education. I think when you're talking about earlier all the ways that class, um, you know, is just baked into our culture. Um, one of the first ways that we divide ourselves up is um, around age 18. Where where are you? going? Are you going off to a campus where you're going to have two or four years to um, sit in a classroom and think about things and examine ideas and get new information? Or are you going to go off to a factory floor or a field? Um, and uh, that um, that moment, that line, is, is certainly one of the um, most dramatic in our society, I think. And one of the things that it's about, and you, you touch on it when you talk about sitting in the classroom and you, and you touch on it in Heartland, is time for or not time for self-reflection. Mm. Yeah. When I endeavored to piece together this book, which, which really took some doing and reconstructing family history because poverty doesn't leave much of a paper trail um, and, you know, People don't have time to do things like keep lovely journals and save letters. And nonetheless, I, I did find some troves. But um, it was, um, you know, uh, it was a difficult task to to just figure out where we came from. In large part because, as you just suggested, we're the the experience of poverty and, and the working poor is you just by necessity always have to have your your eyes pointed. Forward, you're looking at the next task, the next bill, the next chore, the next job application, the next, you know, it, it's just um, the grind of that. It's not to suggest that people of all classes aren't in, oh, incredibly busy and overwhelmed, but, but it's a different overwhelm in that it has to do with just scraping by to survive. And so if you want a moment to take a breath, that is not available as an option. 
And for that reason, in addition to probably the culture I come from, which is German, Catholic, rural farmers, is a very stoic place, not a lot of crying and hugging going on, you know, deep love, certainly, but a, but a very um, um, severe sometimes and austere um, uh, kind of emotional default. So, um, so for that reason, when I'm asking my family to like reflect on the things that happened and reconstruct these memories and how did you feel at this challenging juncture and so on, it, it honestly, not only was it the first time that anyone else cared to ask, I don't think they had necessarily even asked the questions themselves. Um, you know, there's there's no therapy where I come from. <laughs> nobody could afford it. Nobody would have time to do it. Um, and so uh, that was um, that's one of the reasons probably that the book took so many years to write. Those are some thick thick walls to knock mm-hmm. down. Did you have a sense at some point that this was a world that you wanted to escape from? I didn't. You know, I often, people ask me the question, how did you get out? And this is a, this is a phrase that we use, mm-hmm. get out. She got out. How did he get out? You need to be sure to get out. Um, uh, I always loved my home. I always loved my family, and I have always felt deeply rooted in the place that I come from. Now I've lived in places like New York and Kansas City and Austin over the years, but I always go back to the place I was raised, and that is where I live now. Um and so, you know, it's really just to do the things that I wanted to do professionally. Of You know, I, I it was um, that necessitated that I go to places like New York City. Um, and, and that was lovely, too. You know, I, I love New York. Um, but I never, what I wanted to escape was these um, cyclical aspects of poverty, the teen pregnancy, the lack of you know, access to formal education, the um, having no savings, the just the grind of the daily struggle to survive. I want it out of that. But that's not a place and that's not a family and a culture. That's, that's just an economic reality. So, yeah, I wanted to get out of that. But somehow I wanted to simultaneously stay in my place and um, be responsible to my family and even have a sense of kind of um, civic responsibility to to my state and to its progress and and all of those things to my mind require uh being grounded physically in that place so um so you know it's kind of uh the way our i think that our realities and the way that we experience a place are there's so many aspects to it um and we in a kind of 21st century um digital, globalized moment sort of overlook the importance of of just raw geography in in our day-to-day lives, um, feeling, sensing ourselves as somehow kind of like a post-place society. Um, So, you know, I I wanted to get out of poverty, but I didn't want to get out of southern Kansas. Did you want to break the cycle for others? You, you talk about wanting to sort of break this cycle for yourself, but was there a sense of, of larger obligation to get others in the community to, if not do exactly what you had done, to break that cycle of poverty or, or children at an early age? When I was a kid, I don't think I sensed it at that level. I did, however, the the way that I sensed some, you know, desire outside of my own experience was was just unto my family. I always, as a kid, dreamed of, you know, reaching some 
point where I could then help my family too, so that they um, like could actually retire and have a, a, a relaxing day and not a day on a construction site. Um, you know, I think that later in my career, and, and I, I was a professor for about five years where I was, you know, often um, uh, having relationships and friendships and, and being an educator of Kansas kids, some of whom came from places similar to mine. Um, I uh, did feel, a, you know, a sense of... Um, uh, just because of the particular vantage that I had, you know, I would say rare among college professors, just as I'm rare among national media members to, to come from the place I do. I, I did sort of feel like, um, you know, a, wanting to use that position to somehow um, look out for uh, kids who I knew might be like too proud to say that they didn't know the words that someone was using about the college experience because they're families hadn't used those words. Um, and so that's not quite the same thing as you're talking about as like a, a grand mission statement to, <laughs> to save other people. Um, but I do absolutely always feel a responsibility to to others in that, um, you know, we think of class and we talk about class with this metaphor of a ladder, um, the where are you on the, the social ladder, and that suggests that, that something that I have done involves moving upward um, you know, I, I would argue that ultimately we all kind of hold simultaneous narratives and experiences. But whatever's true about that, about my upward mobility, I want to always be, um, you know, having an arm outreached to to help other people up. Sarah Smarsh, her book is Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth. It's just out from Scribner. Sarah, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. This was great. Thanks for the opportunity, Jeff. Thank you.